Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical world, classical education, old books, old ideas, but casted in a new way. Mm. In fact, casted as a pod to you, the <laughs> listener. Um, wow. You connected the dots. I'm yeah, impre- I did. I'm really I'm re- impressed. Hey, yeah. did you got to pull your microphone there, big guy. Uh, right. And I am with, joined with my two buddies, AJ Hannenberg. That's me. And Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hello. And today, gentlemen, from what I see, we are going to be delving deep, deep into the dark hearts of the jungle. Uh-huh. I, for one, am apprehensious about going so deep into the psyche of man. What was that word? Apprehensious. Apprehensive? Apprehensious is pretty good, though. I don't think that's a word. Should we find out? <laughs> Poor Graves Apprehensious. Do- <gasps> is this is not a word? Definitely not a word. It's definitely not a, not word. a word. What? <laughs> Apprehensive. I know, I realize apprehensive is a word, but you, apprehensive can't be a word as well? It could be, but I don't... I think, I mean, it's one of those things Oh, yeah, where Google, Google my shame, both of you. <laughs> apprehensive. Um, Do you see anything? Showing results for apprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm I th- feeling, But here's the thing. I definitely I, don't I want to... I was going to let it roll. I can't believe you... Yeah, what's, what's going on? I, I think, sh- like, Shakespeare did the thing. As uh-huh. lo- my rule is as long as the audience knows what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I, I think it passes yeah, the test. I think it passes the test. Although, yeah. in the, currently in this audience, someone, both of you, jumped out of the woods to be like, "I did what? I didn't my do little gotcha bears." Okay. Did I say a thing? You did not say a thing. I'm sorry. I'm right. sorry. Don't. It's all right. I'm, gotcha my heart bears. is real dark right now, <laughs> and so I'm looking for. <laughs> Should we restart? No, no, no we're not restart. Ah. Keep mm-hmm. it going. No, this oh, rule. That's right. Um, so no, no, we don't get to restart my intros. Apparently, when AJ flubs his lines, <laughs> he gets to restart. He controls the all equipment. the live long day. Yeah, he can do hey, you want to uh, pay for the uh, uh, fair point? Fair yeah, point. No, all right, absolutely not. We are going to be reading. AJ has read and is going to be talking to us about Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, yep. Apocalypse Now. Um, <laughs> and I love this book, and I'm looking forward to it. So, AJ, take it away, big guy. Okay, I'm excited. I I read this book a little while ago when I was oh, probably in college, maybe just out of college, and I was like, well, that's not a little while ago there. That was. A- <laughs> What? We're, we yeah, we are tit for tat. Yeah, tit for tat. That's fair. Easy. Okay. That's my tats are. No, 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 sir. No, sir. No, sir. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Are you sure you don't want to restart? Keep it going. No, roll with it. This is unbelievable. All right, let's get less boogie. Yeah. Uh, oh man, uh, you're right. That's not. It's it's long ago now. I'm getting right. up there. Uh-huh. Oh my yeah, word. You know. I need to sign Lord of the Cries. Uh, <laughs> are you tearing up over there? Bro? A little bit. Oh. Geez. Uh, I, I, I tell my students that a tear has to fall. A uh, tear has not fallen. Okay. No. Okay. no. I was like, Graham is the one who's 40, though. So, like, yeah. you're, 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 you're the I'm aged one it. here. I'm yeah. close, man. A year and a couple months. Not yeah. there yet. Not there yet. Yeah. Anyway, I read it probably after some sometime post-college. Yeah. And I only sort of half understood it and finished it and thought, that was a good book. Yeah. And then I put it down. I never thought about it again. Until I, you know, we started doing the podcast and I'm looking for things that people have probably studied at some point in college or high school and this makes the cut. And so I decided to dive back into it and I thoroughly enjoyed it, especially since I've read other Conrad's since. I read Lord Jim, which mm. if you have been a reader of Heart of Darkness, I cannot recommend Lord Jim more. I won't say it's an easy book. It is not an easy book, but it's an incredibly good book. And I mean, just the themes. And if you if you think Heart of Darkness, so what's Lord Jim? Can you give us like a so Lord mo- Jim movie trailer version? Movie trailer version is there's this kid. He is he's got a heart of gold. He thinks he's you know how every man sort of envisions himself a hero, sort of like the house is on fire. I'm going back in for the cats, you know that kind of thing. Well, he's done the same thing, but they are he is he is a seaman on this vessel that's carrying immigrants from one place to another, and. They realize, the crew does, as everyone is sleeping, that there's only one tiny thin piece of metal that is holding back the entire deluge of the sea, and they will they, they could sink any moment. Mm. So the captain and his band of scruffians decides to jump off the boat and leave all the immigrants to their demise. Mm. Lord Jim, despite his illusions about himself, follows them. Oof. At the last moment, they are he is thinking he should stay on the boat and help all these people off, the crew urge him to abandon ship and abandon all, abandon all these people to their deaths, which is obviously not okay maritime-wise. Right. And he does. He jumps. The people all survive. We find out later they are towed to shore by actually good sailors no. that risk their lives to do it because this book still could sink. This boat could still sink at any moment. Yeah. And he spends the next big chunk of his life dealing with this cognitive dissonance between who he thought he was and who he actually was. Dang. And then he goes through 
extra strange straits to prove to himself mm. that he is a hero. You hear all of this in secondhand tales from sailors. And so you kind of like Conrad is a master at suggestion mm-hmm. and sort of laying details as he goes. And this book is no exception. And I won't ruin the end Don't, for you. Because I'm going to read it now. Yeah. That's Sounds great. awesome. It yep. is a fabulous novel. It yep. really is good. And so having read Lord Jim, I decided to give Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness another try. And I'm, boy, I'm glad I did. I won't say you'll be smiling and clicking your heels together by the end of it. It's not yeah. a happy book, but it is a good book. Before we get there, let me tell you a little bit about, little bit about Conrad himself. He was born on December 3rd, 1857 in Berdyshev, Ukraine, part of the then Russian Empire. Dang. He was the only child of Apollo Korzeniowski, a writer, translator, political activist, and would-be revolutionary, and his wife, Iwo Bobrowski. Real name, Joseph Theodor Konrad Korzeniowski was his actual full name. Wow. Uh, almost all the countryside around him was owned by the Polish nobility. His dad was part of the red political faction, which wanted to... So he's re- Polish. Yeah, he's Polish. I had no idea. I, all yeah. this time, I thought Joseph Conrad was like, good old root and stock Brit. So here's the... Okay, we'll get there. Yeah. So, he, yeah, he's Polish. He, Polish-British, right? Doesn't he, does he move? Eventually British, yeah. yes. Yeah. So he, his dad was part of the red political faction, which wanted to reestablish pre-partition boundaries of Poland and advocate for land reform, abolish serfdom... Joseph didn't want to follow his dad into his revolutionary tendencies, and that kind of, he felt guilty about that for pretty much his whole life, that he wasn't all for Poland and trying to get Poland back to its original glory. So his family moved a whole bunch. They moved to Warsaw, where Apollo, his dad, joined the resistance against the Russian Empire. He was jailed. They got exiled to Vologda, 310 miles north of Moscow. And in 1863, the sentence was commuted, and the family was sent to Chernihiv in northeast Ukraine. Uh, his mom died in 19, 1865 of tuberculosis. Hmm. As a youth, he read Victor Hugo's Toilers of the Sea, a bunch of Shakespeare, and Polish romantic poetry. His dad died in 1869, leaving Conrad orphaned at 11 years old. He went to his uncle, Tadeusz Bobrowski. Conrad had poor health and was bad at school, <laughs> despite his uncle pouring money into him. And so he did get individual tutoring, but he only really excelled at geography. Uh, There is no evidence he attended any school regularly. He may have had only private tutoring. uh, And it seemed he was sick pretty often. And it was maybe nervous origin. So the doctors were like, you know, let's cure this kid. Fresh air and work. Maybe that'll harden him up a little bit. And his dad was like, great. He's bad at school. Let's get this kid a job. Uh, And thought he would make a great sea person, you know, sailor slash businessman. In 1871, Conrad at 13 announced his intention to become a sailor. He had read a bunch of stuff about the sea expeditions, like the two lost ships of the Erebus and the Terror mm. that may have been lost because of, you know, lead poisoning, whatever. There's actually a couple of Netflix series out right now if you want to watch them. Really? They're kind of cool, oh. although they do involve a supernatural polar bear, some witch doctors, and lead poisoning. So, okay. you know, it's not an easy watch. And he had often been a teller of fantastic stories, and they were always set at sea, and everyone that was present was like, it's just, it's taking place in front of my eyes. He was a great storyteller ever since he was young. In 1873, his uncle sent the then 15-year-old Conrad to Luau to a cousin who ran a boarding house for orphan boys. All the group conversation there was in French. He disliked school, but he was smart. He always said he planned to become a great writer and he had severe headaches and nervous attacks. He went back to Krakow with the uncle in 18, with his uncle in 1874, so just one year at the orphanage. Then back off to Marseille for a merchant career on French merchant ships. His uncle gave him a monthly stipend of 150 francs, which is sounds decent back then. Mm-hmm. Pretty sounds pretty sweet. Uh, he was fluent in French, knew a little Latin, German, and Greek. Uh, he had a good knowledge of poetry, some geography, and was already interested in physics. He was well-read. And this is 16 years old. He had not yet finished secondary school. My kind of kid. Yeah. My kind of kid. I mean, for a kid that doesn't like school, he seems to be doing all right. Yeah, yeah seriously. You know, he's, he's got a whole bunch of languages under his belt. He's fluent in French but the thing and is, accent in French. It just has little bits, right? He's just yep. got little smatterings and dabs. Like, I think that's, maybe not dabs. Uh, I think that's the that's the way to go. Is learn a lot of yeah, learn a lot and travel a bit, and it's cool. Yeah, yeah he's he's yeah, learning about the world. In 1877, his maritime career was interrupted when a the Russian consul refused to provide documents for him. He fell into debt, and in 1878, attempted suicide. Oof. And guys, I don't mean half attempted suicide. He shot himself in the chest with a revolver. Mm. Dang. And like, survived it? He I mean, survived he, it. Yeah. I don't understand yeah. how he did. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe he missed a little bit. I, whew. yeah. Anyway, that's rough. It was serious. He survived weirdly, and his uncle helped him out with some money. So after four years in France and on ships, he joined the British Merchant Marine in 1878, and for the next 15 years, he served under the Red Ensign. He worked on a variety of ships, then as a third, second, eventually first mate, and he even got to be a captain at one point. He spent almost eight years at sea, nine months of it as a passenger, and he got captain. His his sole command was when he commanded the bark Otago from Sydney to Mauritius. Let's see, in, we can skip that part. In 1890, he returned to Poland. He was waiting there to proceed to the Congo Free State. This is the period that he will eventually write about as the Mm. heart of darkness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So he did go to the Congo Free State. He was hired by the Society Anonyme Belge pour le Commerce du Rat Congo. So not sure of the exact translation, but society for... Sounds like the Belgians. Yeah, commerce in Congo. It was Belgian. Yeah. He left Africa by the end of December in 1890, arriving in Brussels by January of the following year. This time would be the stuff that he put into The Heart of Darkness. In autumn of 1889, at 32 years old, he began writing his first novel. So he took it took him some time to get started. Uh, it was called Allmayer's Folly. He gave up the sea at 36. And Allmayer's Folly was published in 1895. It was the first use of his pen name, Joseph Comrade. After that, almost all his first writings were published in newspapers and magazines first. It was during the era when almost all novels were serialized, right? You'd milk mm, every chapter mm-hmm. for every penny it was worth. Isn't this a really short book? That's really it's very short. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Financial success long eluded him. He ha- often had to ask for advances from publishers. And eventually he got a government grant of £100 per year to ease his trouble. Mm. Uh, his popular success finally came with a novel, Chance, in 1913, which is funny because it's considered one of his weaker novels. Oh. <laughs> He suffered constantly from mental and physical problems. His suicide by revolver, uh, he was sensitive, conceited, reserved, excitable. He suffered from gout, neuralgic pains in his right arm, recurrent attacks of malaria, and lots of depression. He had a few small romances as he traveled on boats. Eventually, he married a woman named Jessie George, a working-class girl 16 years his junior when he was 39 years old. So she would have been... I don't know. 23. Mm. So young. Yeah. She was often the recipient of criticism from his high society pals, but she was straightforward, devoted, and competent, and probably helped him out with all of his personal problems. Awesome. Right? She just was no nonsense, and his career as a writer probably would have ended a lot earlier without her. They often switched houses, and usually that was Joseph feeling depressed and feeling like he needed a change of scenery, and so they would move, then he'd get depressed again, and they would move again. And so that was him. They had two kids. He had a vacation in 1914 to Poland, which coincided with the outbreak of World War I, which was tough. He eventually made his way back to England, uh, where he was, after a visit back to Poland, determined on swaying British opinion in favor of restoring Poland's sovereignty. He died on August 3rd, 1924, in his house in Kent, England, probably from a heart attack. And he was buried in Canterbury Cemetery in Canterbury under a misspelled version of his (laughs) original Polish name, there was a hey great man, those names are hard. Yeah. <laughs> those names are yeah. difficult. Uh, there was a great crowd at his funeral, and his wife died twelve years later and was buried with him. Aww. So, you know, after his that's a rough, that's a rough go. It is. Yeah, but after his time at sea, I mean, from what forty years old, thirty nine yeah. years old for a while longer, he had a wife and some kids, and just battled with depression and became a writer, yeah. and eventually found economic success. So that's pretty good. Okay, Donaldson. The one thing I couldn't study. Help me out if you know this. Do you know more about the con- the historical context of what was going on in the Congo? Um, I mean, so you've got you've got this big land grab that's happening in the 19th century when the European powers are realizing if we are going to like you've got sort of big industrial booms, big industrial booms need raw materials. You don't have enough raw materials in your sort of the homeland to to provide for all of the iron ore and all of the uh, the coal and, and and burgeoning, you know, this is this is when inventions are coming fast and furious uh, for advances in energy. Like people are literally, this entire whaling industry is born to try to get whales for heating oil, right? Like the world is rapidly changing. And nobody really knows which technology is going to stick in terms of what. And the aim of the game is if you want to stay a power in Europe, you need to be a global power. And England, of course, was at the forefront of that. And they had all the prime 
colonies. They had the New World. Uh, the whole American thing didn't go so well for them. But they had India. They had Australia. They had South Africa. They had the Caribbean. And so all these other nations are realizing, well, crap, we need ones too. And so um, France had Algeria and um, Italy had places in North Africa and uh, France also went down to Vietnam and Belgium got the Congo. And the Congo sort of inland um, for in Africa, major tri water tributaries from what I understand, but um, – um, and Germany was behind the eight ball on being any sort of colonial power, which is sort of one of the big precursors to World War I. Germany realizes, man, we are going to be a shrinking power because the German um, sort of empire had been massive in Europe and the Habsburg dynasty and, and allied with you know the Turks and the, uh, the Austrians. But they realize we don't have any sort of land. So you have this big old land grab. And um, different parts of Af Africa get carved up, and the Belgians have the Congo and are essentially, you know, just sort of milking the land for whatever resources they have. And it's not – and then so you would set up like a trading company, and you would have like a trading company would have the outpost on the coast, and then they would send – people into the land for whatever kinds of resources and then try to bring those resources to the coast, which you would put on boats, which you would send back home to the factories in England or France or whatever to produce whatever products you were, you were making. So pretty extractive, pretty exploitative. Um, massive grab for loot. Yes, massive yes. grab for loot. And you have this sort of sense of – so the Congo is a particularly interesting one because it's, it's with, with it being the Belgians, you have this sense of like – oh, crap, we're behind the game. We're behind the eight ball on this. So um, even less sort of impetus to be a, you know, to do anything. If you had some sort of like higher-minded ideals of creating some kind of like um, importing European society to a place, less of that because it's like we got to get in, we got to get our stuff, and we have to sort of like – bring it back to our homeland because we're falling behind on some sort of global race. And so pretty, pretty, that industrial re revolution is a pretty brutal time for the, you know, the underdeveloped world mm -hmm. and the Congo being one of them. Um, eventually the Belgians are kicked out of the Congo during the big push for, you know, African independence in terms of lots of these countries. And the Congo's in a pretty rough place today still. Um, their biggest sort of resource that they have is cobalt. Uh, cobalt, yeah. um, and so they're sort of at the forefront of a lot of the green, quote unquote, green revolution, because you need that cobalt for batteries. Um, but it is still a pretty, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, not very pol politically stable, and and that is, you know, in large part going back to the sort of this colonial past for sure. Okay, great. Is that helpful? Yeah, that was helpful. Great. That was perfect. That's exactly what I needed. Thank you, Graham. Uh, so I'm going to give the basic plot. Now, when we have these kinds of things, I'm always torn about how much time to spend on the plot and how much time to spend with discussion. I feel like what we should do is spend more time in discussion because, audience, you can read the book for yourself. But, you but know, hey, me, you I mean, it's plot. been a long time since either of yeah. us have read it. So sure. It's true. So I'll try to give a, a good overview. There's so much in here that we have to talk about. Like, I think it's, I think it'll be incredibly fruitful after we're done because I sort of have my reading, but Graham has taught this book before and I'm sure he has a reading of all the symbolism in this book because it's chock full. Okay. Basic plot. There's this sailor named Marlowe and he's on the deck of a ship returning to port in London. And he wants to tell a story to all of his buddies. This is how a few of Conrad's books take shape. The one I mentioned, Lord Jim, is also of this same sort. It's also Marlowe. He's also telling a, an old sailor's yarn to his buddies about this guy he met once named Lord Jim, right? He was one of us. He had our, our spirit, right? So he was this sailing kid, heart of gold. So Marlowe, the, as they sort of sail in, the sun is setting. Everything's kind of getting dark. Everyone's just sort of sitting there waiting for stuff to happen. And he starts to tell of this experience that he had, uh, so he had decided to go to Africa, which for him, and this is where the name begins, is, was a heart of darkness. If you looked at maps of that time, Africa was largely undiscovered, uncharted, and it was, or at least when he was a kid, it was this big sort of black nebulous thing on the map that no one had really figured out yet. And so he said, I want to go to the center of that, to the heart of darkness, right in the middle of that uncharted area. So this is what he's decided. 
and you, presumably with like romantic ideals of like this is going to be an adventure. Right. And who knows what we're going to find there? Yeah, and he thinks it's going to be cool. It is, yeah. And he's a sailor. He's just sort of he has that spirit of adventure in him, mm-hmm. and he just wants to follow it to a place that was when he was a kid uncharted. Yep. He, although lo- when he heads out finally as a grown man, it is more charted than it was. So he decides to go to this thing, and he gets his aunt to recommend him to this trading company probably much like the Belgian trading company that he actually worked for. Yep. Uh, he goes off to get his position in France and he meets, or not France, but you know, he, he crosses the, the English channel, goes into Belgium, finds the people. And while he's there, there's a fun little section that if you're not reading a version with notes that you might miss and he meets the, these women. So he talks about the place that he's going, this little office that he has to run to to sort of get his position. And he says, two women, one fat and the other slim, sat on straw bottom chairs knitting black wool. The slim one got up and walked straight at me, still knitting with downcast eyes. And only just as I began to think of getting out of her way, as you would for a somnambulist, stood still and looked up. Her dress was as plain as an umbrella cover, and she turned around without a word and preceded me into a waiting room. I gave my name and looked about. And it goes on, these two women are supposed to represent two of the three fates yeah. of... Clotho and Letho or all the... Or, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, and we're missing one of them, Atropos, the yeah. cutter, the yeah. one who actually cut... Did you? How did you know this? That's what it sounded like, just with the knitting and everything, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Man, uh, you're good at that. Yeah. Okay, anyway, that's the first fun little section, is these... Who's the cutter? What's the... Uh... Uh, Atropos. Uh, can you explain to me what the fates are? I can't remember. So the three fates... I don't have of, Google like maybe. One of them spins the wool <laughs> together. To get the name, that's oh, I'm just yeah. kidding. Clotho, Atropos, mm-hmm. and... Is it Lacesis? Yeah. So there's three of them. One of them spins the wool. One of them measures the wool out the length of your life. Like you are born, you live, and then Atropos is the cutter. She cuts it. So these two women were missing the one that will cut his fate. So he is being strung out into this thing. So he gets his position. The There's very little fanfare. The guy just says, yeah, your aunt contacted me. You sound great. We got these. We're sending everybody. We're bringing back all kinds of loot. And primarily we're getting a bunch of ivory. It's going to be great. And then he gets his skull measured by a doctor, which is fun. Okay. And then he, he heads off. He gets into a steamer and he starts heading along the coast of Africa. And it is this entire, for this entire book, the wilderness is something... Silent, stolid, foreboding, unchanging, dangerous, dangerous, something that will overwhelm you if you are not careful. And I want to read a small section. This ain't your romantic nature. This is this is a nature of that is against you. Yeah, I'm going to be reading sections of the book primarily because Joseph Conrad is a master. And this, I wanted to come back to this because he was originally Polish. He didn't originally speak English. And the dude is better at writing English than I will ever be. He is great, and he is also a master of suggestion. I don't know how he does it, but he can make you feel a feeling while just describing as something something simple happening around. As far as tone and suggestion go, he is he's just unparalleled. Okay, so he says, Once I remember we came upon a man of war anchored off the coast. There wasn't even a shed there, and she was shelling the bush. It appears the French had one of their wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign drooped like a limp rag, the muzzles of the long, eight-inch guns stuck out all over the low hull. Low hull. The greasy, shiny swell swung her up lazily and let her down, swaying her thin masts. In the empty immensity of earth, sky, and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. Pop would go one of the eight-inch guns. A small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would appear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble screech. And nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drollery in the sight, and it was not dissipated by somebody on board assuring me earnestly there was a camp of natives, he called them enemies, hidden out of sight somewhere. So just this boat firing into Africa Mm -hmm. indiscriminately at a bunch of natives they have named enemies. And this this is something that will change as the book goes on. They will name the natives various things in order to take advantage of them. Here they are enemies, Elsewhere, they are criminals. Sometimes they are workers. Sometimes they are savages or cannibals. Basically, any any societal pigeonhole that you can put them in in order to take advantage of them. All right, so that's on his way. And he finally gets off the boat and lands at a sort of a station, one of these si- like port stations, mm-hmm where there is a rail, railway way being built. And there really was. This is something he actually saw as was a railway being built. And 
There's a whole bunch of criminal natives that are chained and are trying to haul things around, and the whole place is in disarray. Half the things are broken. There's a rail truck with its wheels in the air. No one seems to know what's going on. There's a part where there's a hole that's been dug, and he has no idea what the hole could possibly be for. It's not a quarry. It's not for anything. It looks like someone just had to keep someone busy, so they told them to dig a hole. It seems like wasted, misused resources all over the place, including people. Okay, I want to get to page 20. Isn't there like a cheery Brit who like has his tent all nice and neat? Yep, but yeah, we'll get yeah, there. Yeah. It's not his tent, well, but we'll get there. So he, in this place, he comes across one of the most erecting, uh, arresting scenes in the entire book. And I think you'd call it maybe the Grove of Death. So let's see if I can find the beginning of the passage. Talks about the whole. My purpose was to stroll into the shade for a moment, but no sooner within than it seemed to me I had stepped into the gloomy circle of some inferno. The rapids were near, and an uninterrupted, uniform, headlong, rushing noise filled the mournful stillness of the grove, where not a breath stirred, not a leaf moved with a mysterious sound, as though the tearing pace of the launched earth had suddenly become audible. Black shapes crouched, lay, sat between the trees leaning against the trunks, clinging to the earth, half coming out, half effaced within the dim light, in all the attitudes of pain, abandonment, and despair. Another mine on the cliff went off, followed by a slight shudder of the soil under my feet. The work was going on. The work. And this was the place where some of the helpers had withdrawn to die. They were dying slowly. It was very clear. They were not enemies. They were not criminals. They were nothing earthly now, nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation, lying confusedly in the greenish gloom. Brought from all the recesses of the coast and all the legality of time contracts, lost in uncongenial surroundings, fed on unfamiliar food, they sickened, became inefficient, and were then allowed to crawl away and rest. These moribund shapes were free as air and nearly as thin. I began to distinguish the gleam of eyes under the trees, then, glancing down, I saw a face near my hand. The black bones reclined at full length with one shoulder against the tree, and slowly the eyelids rose and the sunken eyes looked up at me, enormous and vacant, a kind of blind white flicker in the depths of the orbs which died out slowly. The man seemed young, almost a boy. But you know with them it's hard to tell. I found some, nothing else to do but to offer him one of my good Swede's ship biscuits I had in my pocket. The fingers closed slowly on it and held. There was no other movement and no other glance. He had tied a bit of white worsted around his neck. Why? Where did he get it? Was it a badge, an ornament, a charm? proprietary act? Was there any idea at all connected with it? It looked, starting, it looked startling round his black neck, this bit of white thread from beyond the seas. Near the same tree, two more bundles of acute angles sat with their legs drawn up. One with his chin propped on his knees stared at nothing, in an intolerable and appalling manner. His brother phantom rested its forehead, as if overcome with a great weariness, and all the others were scattered in every pose of contorted collapse, as in some picture of a massacre or a pestilence. While I stood horror-struck, one of these creatures rose to his hands and knees and went off on all fours towards the river to drink. He lapped out of his hand, then sat up in the sunlight, crossing his shins in front of him, and after a time, let his woolly head fall on his breastbone. It's rough. Yep. That is a rough section. And so the rhetoric of the time had been about civilization-making, right? Mm -hmm. These people are savages. Let's go get rid of their savagery and make this into a civilized place. Doesn't seem like that's what's happening. No. It seems like they are taking advantage of a people and using them like objects to, to get them going. So, cheery book so yeah. far. We are only about 20 pages in. So he has to... Oh, this is where the dandy accountant comes in. Mm. So directly set. It's the, literally the next page. Mm -hmm. Directly set against this, this accountant pops up and he has this wonderful clothes on. His hair is combed. He's brushed. He's wearing all of the finery of Britain. And he's the accountant and he has had to find a native woman to help him maintain this thing. And the funny thing is he works in a shed that doesn't even keep the sun out. Mm. And he's mostly annoyed by the natives that are nearby. They're loud. He can't get his figures right. He's kind of frustrated. And he mentions this guy called Kurtz. And apparently there's this dude that is in the heart of the continent who is just bringing back more altogether, more ivory than everyone else combined. And he is just, he is amazing. And they're like, he's got a future ahead of him. He's this fantastic thing. And our main character sort of becomes enamored of who this guy is. Who's this guy that's going off into like, 
you know, the adventurous unknown up the river of like dangerous people that could kill you, and he's and he's winning more ivory than anybody. And he's yeah. hauling. Yeah, he's crushing it. So he has to hang out at this place for about ten days. Eventually, he gets a caravan of sixty men together for a two hundred mile tramp. Some of the dudes die, and I quote, now and then a carrier dead in harness at rest in the long grass near the path with an empty water gourd and his long staff lying by his side. A great silence around and above, which is rough. He also has this portly fellow with him who continuously faints in the sunlight, and they have to haul him, and then Mm. he makes the natives haul him, and the natives don't want to haul him, so they find in the morning that the natives have run off, and this poor guy is, like, skinned because they just dropped him, and people are dying randomly, and... It's a pretty harrowing trek. Eventually, he makes the camp at the inside of the continent. And the manager there is a perfectly average person. And I kind of want to read the description of him. My first interview interview with the manager was curious. He did not ask me to sit down after my 20-mile walk that morning. He was commonplace in complexion, in feature, in manner, and in voice. He was of middle size and of ordinary build. His eyes, of the usual blue, were perhaps remarkably cold, and he could, have made his, he could make his glance fall on anyone as trenchant and as heavy as an axe. Uh, it goes on to say that the thing... He was obeyed, yet he inspired neither love nor fear nor even respect. He inspired uneasiness. <laughs> that was it. Uneasiness. Not a definite mistrust, just uneasiness. Nothing more. You have no idea how effective such a... Such a faculty can be. He had no genius for organizing or initiative or for order even that was evident in such things as the deplorable state of the station. He had no learning and no intelligence. His position had come to him. Why? Perhaps because he was never ill. (laughs) He had served three terms of three years out there because of triumphant health in the general route of constitutions is a kind of power in itself. This guy is average. He is middle management. Totally all the way through to his very core. And the reason he is succeeding is because he doesn't get sick sick, and everybody else does. Okay. You got to find your lane. You got to find your thing. (laughs) Yeah. Got to find your thing. Got to sing your song. You got to find what you're good at. (laughs) There it's, he kind of has to hang out. He finds out that they tried to go up the river two days before he arrived because they couldn't, couldn't wait and ripped the entire bottom out of the Mm. boat. And so now it is sunk. So he has to figure out how to get this steamboat working again. And he has to wait for rivets. Rivets Mm. aren't coming. They send messengers back up to the first camp and they come back with no rivets and three or four caravans come through with no rivets. And he's like, at the original camp, you could have all the rivets you wanted. I could reach down anywhere and pick up a rivet, Mm -hmm. but I can't get rivets to save my life down here. And it was driving him mad. And I think he stayed there for a couple of months just waiting for rivets to show up. Crazy. And it's, this camp is not a good place and it is constantly threatened by all the foliage around. Mm. And it's just a a scary thing. Let's see. How much time we got? Uh, Okay. I'm going to skip this next part. Um, So finally they get going and he gets his, his boat kind of hauling. And they go on their journey and it's kind of a scary thing. And, you know, it's just trying to dodge. It's really slow going. They're trying to dodge hitches in the water and he gets to know the vicissitudes of the river. Was there something about poison darts? Comes later. Okay. So on their way, they come across a flag that has been raised and there's a little Mm. stack of wood and Mm -hmm. he stops by the stack of wood and this little hut and he finds a note that says approach cautiously. He also finds a little book and it's about seafaring and it has it looks like there are notes written in cipher. Mm-hmm. And he, so he picks up this book and heads back and they're like, okay, approach cautiously. We got to be careful. And they do. And they're going nice and slow. And they're about, I think it's, I think it's only eight miles or so. No, it's, it's, a, they're, they're really close to where they got to go. And they're like, okay, it's getting dark. We're not going to, we're supposed to approach cautiously. So we'll hunker down for the night. And they do. And they wake up the next day to a fog. And about 10 in the morning, it lifts and then it drops again. Mm. And it is super fog. And then there's this massive attack. So they basically he's standing there and everyone's alarmed. And then there's this huge yell all around the boat. And they're like, oh no, what's going on? From the fog. Yeah, from from the fog. And they're like, what's going to happen? Are we going to get killed? I don't even know. Are they going to attack? And that lasts for a little while, just this question. Everybody goes and grabs a gun out of their little, you know, place where they sleep. And then all of a sudden he just starts hearing things drop. Like, oh, it seems like people are throwing sticks. Like, what is happening? Turns out these are all arrows oh and they are God. being fired at from the bush. Wow. And he says they don't look, 
the quote is, they had been poisoned. They may have been poisoned, but they looked as though they wouldn't kill a cat. <laughs> they were these little ineffectual arrows that weren't really doing much. And I don't think anybody dies on either side. His his team is firing with their eyes shut from the hip right. and are all firing over the heads of anyone who could possibly be hit. Right. And then there's one guy who catches a spear in the side. It's huh. his steersman. And his steersman is a man of incredible ego and apparently only steers well when he has an audience. So you have to leave <laughs> someone in the room with him and he'll, he steers like a dynamo. And then if you leave him alone... He loses his confidence and can't steer the ship to save his life, <laughs> which cracks me up. He gets speared in the side, bleeds all over the place. You need that guy. Does he die? Huh? You need that guy. It's yeah. steersman. That's important. He dies. Okay. He gets our main character's socks and shoes all bloody, and he feels oh. like he has to change them, so he actually flings his shoes into the river. Bad move. Yeah. And then he kind of tips the dead body of that steersman overboard, mm. much to the chagrin of the rest of his crew, who are all cannibals, and mm. at this point are very hungry because mm. they had not had a person to eat in a long time. Okay. So, dead helmsman, and they finally arrive at Kurtz's place. Mm -hmm. And this is where things get weird. <laughs> I don't really know how to explain what happens with Kurtz. First, he meets this, this cat that's kind of like a, it's a, it's a person who's kind of like a wearing Harlequin. Wearing Motley, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah, wearing oh, man, this weird back. mix of really colorful clothing and he's like I'm so glad you're here it turns out the book with all the cipher and it was his and he was oh. writing in Russian because he's a Russian guy oh okay and he says Kurtz is here but he is sick and, and this guy is absolutely enthralled to Kurtz mm -hmm. he talks about his poetry he talks about Kurtz's deep voice and all of his great ideas he talks about how he has totally changed his worldview how he's this wonderful amazing specimen and he is like near king in this mm -hmm. place you get the sense that this poor kid is enthralled to Kurtz pretty, pretty seriously. He's almost yep. a puppet. And he says, I haven't slept for 10 days because I've been nursing him back to, back to health. You nursing, find out. Nursing Kurtz back to health? Yeah. Oh, so he's. Kurtz has been sick a couple of times. Yeah. He's currently sick right now. Okay. And, and you find out that there was a time when he had gotten some ivory and Kurtz basically said, give me the ivory. And the guy said, this is my payment. And he goes, give it to me because out here I can kill you and nothing will happen to me if I do. And it's mine. Okay. And the kid says okie doke yep. and gave him the ivory and then kind of had to duck away from him for a while but this poor kid is just trying to help Kurtz stay alive yep. Kurtz is currently living in another busted down shack and around it seems to be a fence of just posts and no rails it seems like the rails have all fallen down oh. there are all these posts around the thing with little knobs on top and yeah. it's, it's real strange and we find out that Kurtz's methods you know, here, let me just let me just read this section about how Kurtz has been able to get all of his stuff. Mm, so what was he, what was he doing? Exploring or what? I asked. And this is from our Harlequin. Oh yes, of course. He had discovered lots of villages, a lake too. He did not know exactly in what direction. It was dangerous to inquire too much, but mostly his expeditions had been for ivory, but he had no goods to trade with by that time. I objected. There's a good lot of cartridges left even yet. He answered, looking away to speak plainly. He raided the country. Mm. I said. He nodded. Not alone, surely. He muttered something about villages around the lake. Kurtz got the tribe to follow him, did he? I suggested. He fidgeted a little. They adored him, he said. The tone of his, these words were so extraordinary that I looked at him searchingly. It was curious to see his mingled eagerness and reluctance to speak of Kurtz. The man filled his life, occupied his thoughts, swayed his emotions. What can you expect? He burst out. He came to them with thunder and lightning, you know, and they had never seen anything like it, and very terrible. He could be very terrible. You can't judge Mr. Kurtz as you would an ordinary man. No, 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 you... Just to give you an idea, I don't mind telling you he wanted to shoot me, too, one day, but I don't judge him. Shoo you, I cried. What for? And this is why we find out the... The ivory thing. The ivory thing. Immediately after this, Marlowe takes a closer look at, look at the fence, and on one of the knobs, he sees a face and realized that it was never a fence, that these are poles with skulls on top of mm. them, that what Kurtz has done is make himself essentially some sort of devil god king mm. to these tribes of people and claim all the ivory for himself. And apparently he even takes part, and the guy says he has become a devil, mm. literally sitting in the chair of the devil over these tribes as they do all of their rituals, and from that is how he gets all of his stuff. Yeah, he was not afraid of the natives. They would not stir till Mr. Kurtz gave the word. Um, yeah, I don't want to... Uh, maybe I'll read this part. All right. There was nothing exactly profitable in these heads being there, the heads on the poles. 
they only showed that Mr. Kurtz lacked restraint in the gratification of his various lusts, that there was something wanting in him, some small matter which, when the pressing need arose, could not be found under his magnificent eloquence. Whether he knew of this deficiency himself, I can't say. I think the knowledge came to him at last, only at the very last. But the wilderness had found him out early, and had taken on him a terrible vengeance for the fantastic invasion. I think it had whispered to him things about himself which he did not know, things of which he had no conception till he took counsel with his great solitude, and the whisper had proved irresistibly fascinating. It echoed loudly within him because he was hollow at the core. I put down the glass, and the head that had appeared near enough to be spoken to seemed at once to have leapt away from me into inaccessible distance. So, Mr. Kurtz is not a great dude. No. No. But he was like, if I remember correctly, was just like an ordinary average dude when he went out there. I mean, maybe of like exceptional talent. Everyone sort of thought he was a genius and had exceptional talent, but But he he wasn't wasn't super wealthy and he wasn't crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But he went out and then something... Broke, right? Yes. The darkness whispered him in. Okay. We're, I'm going to do a quick overview of basically the rest of the stuff that happens. And then we got to, Kurtz is really the, the, I mean, beating heart of this book. Yep. He may be the heart of darkness. So Kurtz is sick. So they decide to haul him away. And he is, when he is revealed, he's this seven foot tall, long white skeleton with a gaping mouth that looks like it wants to eat the whole world. That's what he says. The natives don't want to see him leave. So they all come out with war weapons. He basically tells them off and says, go back. I'm okay. Because Kurtz wants to leave. He wants to get Well, better. they put him on the boat. I don't think they're really taking Kurtz's no for sure. a no. Yeah. We find out that it was Kurtz who actually ordered the attack on the steamship mm-hmm. oh. because he didn't want to leave. Yeah. And he didn't, he knew he was sick. He knew he could be taken, but he didn't want to go. Yeah. And so he had ordered the attack. The natives all came out to save him. And then as they, right before they sailed away the next morning, he actually escaped in his sickened state, tried to crawl his way back to the tribes. Our main character, Marlowe, goes and confronts him and basically says, you stop or I will beat you to a pulp. Mm -hmm. And that's the deal. Mm -hmm. And so, and he says, if you stay here, you are lost. And that was apparently the right words to get Kurtz to think of his own safety. So he picks him up, brings him back, and Kurtz slowly dies on the ship. And I'll read a quote from that as well, his sort of like last words and as he's sitting there dying. As they leave, as they sail off before Kurtz has finally died, all of the natives line the coast Mm -hmm. essentially to say goodbye to him. And they, they are all watching and they are all kind of mourning. And there's this woman who has shown up a couple of times in of absolute inexpressible beauty in all. And she has probably the worth of 12 elephants on her of, I forget the exact number, but it's glass beads and finery and tusks and feathers. And she is absolutely glorious. You assume that it has been his woman as he's been here. And as they sail off, she lifts her hands in this sort of benediction or curse or whatever it is, you know, for, for Marlowe, it's all sort of inscrutable. He doesn't know what the natives are saying. And so all of their motions, he can only take for what a European sees them as, which is sometimes devilry. He, he doesn't know it. The way he treats natives is, and, and even as it's written here in this book, they are, they are basically, they are men. He doesn't put them below men, but he says they are like early men, men before history really existed. And so that's kind of what they are, but they have the same humanity we do. And we might have all this finery and civilization, but shake me hard once and all that comes off and I'm the same as them. So that, that feels ahead of its time. So he's got this woman, Kurtz dies, our main character goes back. He has a few of Kurtz's effects, people try to get him, but then he eventually gives them to his real intended wife, this poor woman, mm. And she basically says all these wonderful, wonderful things about Kurtz, asks what his final words were. He was like ambitious and he was capable and he was going to go off and make a fortune. He was a musician. He was going to be this like company man. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He was sort of this like, you know, the, the sort of flower of, of European gentility, like the kind of person you would want to be. And then he goes, yeah, if I remember, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. He's this wonderful dude. And she asks what were his dying words? And he, Marlowe says, your name, mm-hmm. which is an abject lie. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh, I know it. I love him. <laughs> you knew him too. It was impossible not to love him. And he's this wonderful character. And then it sort of ends. <sighs> so we got to read. Those were not his last words. Those were not his last words. These are his actual last okay. words. Let's see. One evening coming in with a candle, I was startled to hear him saying a little tremulously, I'm lying here in the dark waiting for death. The light was within a foot of his eyes. I forced myself to murmur, oh, nonsense, and stood over him as if transfixed. Anything approaching the change that came over his features I have never seen before, 
and hope never to see again. Oh, I wasn't touched. I was fascinated. It was as though a veil had been rent. I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power, of craven terror, of an intense and hopeless despair. Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment of complete knowledge? He cried in a whisper at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror. The horror. <laughs> then he leaves. And that was it. That was Kurtz's last little bit. The horror. The horror. And then uh, through 88, 87, 88... And then we have this evaluation of life by Marlowe. He's talking about it. I remain to dream the nightmare out to the end and to show my loyalty to Kurtz once more. Destiny. Once again, those ladies with the thread show up. My destiny. Droll thing, life is. That mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late. A crop of inextinguishable regrets. I've wrestled with death. It is the most unexciting con contest you can imagine. It takes place uh, in an impalpable grayness, with nothing underfoot, with nothing around, without spectators, without clamor, without glory, without the great desire of victory, without the great fear of defeat, in a sickly atmosphere of tepid skepticism, without much belief in your own right, and still less in that of your adversary. If such is the form of ultimate wisdom, then life is greater, a greater riddle than some of us think it to be. I was within a hair's breadth of the last opportunity for pronouncement, and I found with humiliation that probably I would have nothing to say, like for last words. This is the reason why I affirm that Kurtz was a remarkable man. He had something to say. He said it. Since I had peeped over the edge myself, I understand better the meaning of his stare that could not see the flame of the candle but was wide enough to embrace the whole universe, piercing enough to penetrate all the hearts that beat in the darkness. He had summed up. He had judged the horror. He was a remarkable man, after all. This was the expression of some sort of belief. It had candor. It had conviction. It had a vibrating note of revolt in its whisper. It had the appalling face of a glimpsed truth, the strange commingling of desire and hate. And it is not my own extremity I remember best, a vision of grayness without form filled with physical pain and a careless contempt for the evanescence of all things, even of this pain itself. No, it is his extremity that I have lived, seemed to have lived through. True, he had made that last stride, he had stepped over the edge while I had been permitted to draw back my hesitating foot. And perhaps in this is the whole difference. Perhaps all wisdom and all truth and all sincerity are just compressed into that inaccessible moment of time in which we step over the threshold of the invisible. Perhaps. I like to think that my summing up would not have been a word of careless contempt. Better his cry, much better. It was an affirmation, a moral victory paid for by innumerable defeats, by abominable terrors, by abominable satisfactions, but it was victory. That's why I have remained loyal to Kurtz to the last and even beyond when a long time after I heard once more not his own voice, but the echo of his magnificent eloquence thrown to me from a soul as translucently pure as a cliff of crystal. So, you know, not a, not a fun evaluation of life. No. If you're looking for a cheery story, this isn't it. But this is Kurtz. Mm -hmm. He goes on the next second to say that he has essentially wrestled with a bare soul, a soul laid bare. So Kurtz comes to represent a number of things. He is talked of as a voice. When they first see him, he is almost described as the a vision of death itself, right? It's almost like ivory itself. Yeah, ivory itself, yeah, yeah. a seven foot tall skeleton. Yeah. He is entirely rapacious. He seems like he wants to eat the whole world. Mm -hmm. A man entirely given into his lusts, but weirdly in a place with almost no sin. Like he can do this without a heaven or hell. And he's what, what Africa has given him is a chance to reach down into his absolute innermost desire for power and give it play. And so he has seen this thing in himself. He has seen all these unspeakable horrors that he can be. And he says, Oh, horror, horror. When our main character is like, well, I would just, just would have said it's probably like gray and boring. <laughs> and, right. and, that's Kurtz. And so the question is, what exactly does Kurtz represent? Is he the representation of colonialism itself or of ivory and the desire for ivory? Is he simply the soul of man? Is he death? It's, it's a number of things. And that's why I was kind of interested to bring this up, Graham, because you taught it. What's your pull? Where do you land as Kurtz as a symbol? Because Conrad has made it obvious that Kurtz is a symbol. He says, I may have made him too symbolic. Yeah. Uh, I've always read Kurtz, so he's the other side of that optimistic coin about, like, progress. 
So in the 19th century, you have this idea that we, through our expansion and through our technology and through our cleverness and our empire, we can civilize the world and we can bring, um, we can make the we can make the world a Garden of Eden again, right? So you have this. Uh, I always think of the um, the speech given by Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, at the opening of um, the Crystal Cathedral. No, not Crystal Cathedral. What's that called? Uh, um, uh, Crystal Palace. Crystal Cathedral is that church in California. Yeah. The Crystal Palace, where he basically says. Uh, through our technology, we can communicate with each other. And he says, you know, the fact that we have the telegraph means that we're never going to have miscommunication ever again because we can talk to each other. And, and, he's, and, and he has this very optimistic view that the progress of man uh, allied with technology and science and, the, and expansion is going to bring a greater peace and stability and harmony to the world. And then on the other side of that coin, then you have, you know, our worker bees who are going to go out and make that happen. And Kurtz is one of these guys, and he goes off, and his job is to do the company's work. Like, you are a company man, and you're going to go into the bush, and you are going to, you know, you've got your KPIs, and you've got your, you know, the things that the the corporation needs you to do. And he goes off, and he does. And when he gets into a place where, yeah, I, I love that line where, Marlowe says, you know, if you give me a, a solid shake, uh, I would lose all of the veneer of civilization as well. And so you have this person who's supposed to be one of these emissaries of this, like, enlightened age of this expansion of the 19th century. And when he goes off and he, he is on the sort of forefront of doing that, um, nothing is staying his hand. And because nothing is staying his hand, he gives, you know, like, he f- falls into the complete sort of broken heart of man so we can't you know kurtz can't even save himself how are we supposed to turn the world into eden with our empire and with our science and with our progress as soon as we get as soon as we are sort of given a taste of the power in order to do this uh we destroy everything so you have this empire that is not elevating the quote savages and the and the criminals and whatnot they are exploiting them and kurtz is not being able to go off and is He's not this little seed of civilization that's going to get planted in the Congo and bloom into something glorious. He's goes off and becomes a devil. He becomes this like devouring god uh, in the Congo that weaponizes these people's beliefs to serve him. And um, and then when he like he's confronted with Europeans and and when he's confronted with like his peers. Like, Marlowe is kind of this dispassionate dude being like, I'm going to kick the crap out of you if you don't smarten up. And then he's like, oh, yeah, holy crap. I am just a man. I'm not a god in the, wo- in the jungle. And um, when he's on the boat and he sort of, like, has this moment to reflect on who he is and what he's become, that's the, that is the reflection that he has, is the horror of the horror. And then when you go back to your cute little plump wife and she's like, what was, my, <laughs> what was my husband's last words as he goes off into the bush and as he goes off to this glorious thing? And he's like, oh, well, his last words for, were for you, sweetie, and how he just wants, like, a picket fence and two happy kids and, and uh, you know, all those wonderful memories of his days in Africa. You know, like, Conrad sort of is laying bare the truth of this, this you know, expansive world that believes in human progress just through human ingenuity and human science and human technology. Um, and at the end of it, it's what do you have, but you're this like devouring white skeleton. I, it's love. I love heart of darkness. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's brutal, but it's, I think it is correct. Yeah. And I was going to say it may even go deeper into that. I mean, you, you mentioned it at the very end that he basically goes off and has, has no more of these sort of trappings that are holding him normal. Yeah. And becomes this devouring god, and the heart of darkness is not just the heart of Africa. It is the heart of. It yes. seems like the heart of man. It is. The, it is so take he, away any sort of like normalizing or civilizing force, and what does what does man become if be if allowed to sort of be given over to all of his Nietzschean power desire? Yeah. This is what you get. Entirely ruled by his lust, wholly rapacious. Yeah given into all of those things and not even giving the natives anything for their trouble. Yeah. He is basically shooting his gun and saying, I am your Lord. Mm-hmm. And 
and falls into this. And so it seems like he is the, the soul of man laid bare because there is nothing there to keep him from mm-hmm. being that, being the thing that he kind of wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So that is the heart of darkness. Mm-hmm. The heart of darkness is man. And the great thing is at the end of the novel, Marlowe and the boys are sitting there after finishing this story, you know, heading into London. Let me read the last line. Mm-hmm. Fronted woman. Oh, and the part where he's talking to the, the wife, the wife turns to the windows and raises her arm exactly like the woman in the jungle, mm-hmm. which is a little heartbreaking. Okay, here's the end of it. Marlowe ceased and sat apart, indistinct and silent, in the pose of a meditating Buddha. Nobody moved for a time. We've lost the first ebb, said the director suddenly. I raised my head. The offing was barred by a black bank of clouds and the tranquil waterway leading to the uttermost ends of the earth flowed somber under an overcast sky, seemed to lead into the heart of an immense darkness. Mm -hmm. So... Back into London. Back into London. And so he... And the part I skipped at the very beginning was Marlowe musing kind of off the cuff as he begins this story as uh, what it might have been like to be a Roman general coming here. For the very first time. For the very first time, which is exactly how London was civilized. And would the same sort of thing have happened to this general? And he's just kind of thinking about colonialism and all it's bent. But we see, he's like, look, Africa's not that far away, right? If you want a heart full of darkness, look no further than our own cities, Mm -hmm. right? Where... Like, that's where we are. That is man. They are us. Same thing. Africa mm-hmm. is London. We are all so dark mm-hmm. and broken. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you mentioned Marlowe as Ivory? Yeah. I I, I see, you seem to remember. Marlowe or Kurtz? Sorry, Kurtz. Uh, Kurtz. Yeah, Kurtz. I seem Ivory. to remember, like, that Kurtz is, I mean. His appearance, he's, right? He, his mean? appearance. He's blonde. He's German. He's super tall. And he looks so sickly and he looks so pale that he almost ends up, like, looking like the thing that he's sort of lusting and desiring after. Ivory, the great symbol of what he wants. And you can just sort of imagine that his underlings or the, or the tribes people see that this, this vengeful god that is living amongst them is like, has this appetite for ivory and looks like ivory. And there's this sort of, uh, I don't know, I, I've always, that's just. Well, and it makes sense that he has the skill of enthralling Europeans, mm-hmm. right? The Harlequin gets enthralled to this guy and mm-hmm. just listening to his voice and all of his, all of his big power. And mm-hmm. when really there's nothing there. It's all just smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. And then even Marlowe gets sort of under his spell into his curse. Mm-hmm. And if Ivory is doing that to everybody, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah. But it doesn't quite hold true because the, the manager is like, oh, I don't like his methods. He ruined these people for us. Like, yeah, yeah, we can't yeah. keep this going. Exactly. And so Marlowe kind of gets shoved out the side, even, you know, he's he's part of the crew that like Kurtz, yeah. and then Kurtz is kind of on the outs. The juxtaposition of, like, the great bureaucratic machine of the empire, of the, like, the company, next to Kurtz, who's sort of off in the bush going native and setting himself up as this god. I mean, that's a very, that's a very interesting dynamic. I mean... Because the manager doesn't think it's sustainable. Exactly. We can't make another yeah, god yeah. to rule this place. Mm-hmm. And so once he's gone, we've lost all the ivory here. Yeah. Um, I'm probably, there's probably lots we could say also with like Apocalypse Now in the movie and all that because it's based on the book. Sure. And Maybe there's even more to find. I mean, it's incredible for 96 pages. Yeah. I forgot how much was packed yeah. into it. Like you just even talking about why, Mar- why Kurtz's voice had mm-hmm. to be the first thing. Mm-hmm. Joseph Conrad writes about... Kurtz's voice before anything. Mm -hmm. He imagined him as a voice, speaking and doing things. And we barely hear him talk at all. We get probably four or five full sentences out of him. That's it. And the horror, the horror is one of them. And so you never actually get to hear his voice. And this is where Joseph Conrad is such a master is he sort of suggests these things, but never has to fully deliver them. So he is able to suggest even more than he could possibly deliver. Yeah, you see, he suggests that Marla or that Kurtz at some points had written some kind of like, these books or philosophical oh, he wrote, treatises. He wrote a 16-page, yeah. I remember this, he wrote 16 pages on the civiliza- civilizing action that they were going, and then at the very end of it, he had written a postscriptum that said, exterminate all the savages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's horrible. Yeah. And, and Kurtz had forgotten that he added it. And That's he said, right. take this paper, take it back, everyone's gonna be super impressed by it, and there's all this wonderful eloquence, but the end of it is just kill them all. Yeah, you have this, you have this idea that Kurtz was this sort of true believer in... Um, their sort of the civilizing mission of the European into these various places. And then when he got in there and was in there, he's like, yeah, it was a we can kill them all. We can kill them all. And yeah. that's what we need to do. And so you, you get this idea that like whatever high minded ideals sent men like Kurtz out, like once 
it was like truly man to man. You just get this power dynamic and Kurtz ends up becoming this devil. So it's, it's, yes, it's just a, um, uh, it is such just, yeah, it's such a good takedown of sort of that optimism of that, of the 19th century that is, that it led all the way up to the world, up to world war one. So it's, it's a great book. I love it's it. a great book. If you have three or four hours, do yourself a favor, read it. I mean, it's, but, it's a bummer. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're not gonna be happy by the end <laughs> of it. But oh man, and there's so much more you could talk yeah. about. Civil, yeah. There's just so much there. It's much better to have like implied Kurtz's speech that is so eloquent than to actually have like a hundred pages of John Galt's speech at the yes. end of Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Especially because the the impression of it. Is, is so much yeah. more effective than, than oh, this is not actually reading the good. thing and being like, oh, it sounds like a 12 year old. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. I'm good. Cool. Awesome. That's well, great. this has been classical stuff you should know. Um, just think of us as three dudes on a steamship guiding you through the heart of darkness. No, 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 no I don't want any part right, of what's happening. No, thank you. Um, think of us as three guys in a Buick driving to, to Sonic. We're going to get some. We're gonna get some cherry limeades, boys, let's and do it. let's get some tots, some tater tots, and let's leave the horror behind. Um, thank you for listening. You can find us at classicalstuff.net uh, on X, Twitter, CLSSCAL stuff. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can patronize us on Patreon, where we have in between episodes, monthly AMAs, other little tidbits and goodies. Um, and we thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.